Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The Greenville Oaks Church of Christ seeks all who need Jesus and together are becoming His fully devoted followers, encouraging and equipping people to love God, love people, and serve others in an ever-growing way of life. Find out more about Greenville Oaks or connect with us online at greenvilleoaks.org. As always, we ask that you subscribe to, rate, and review our podcast. It makes it easier for others to find us. And now, on to this week's message with Lead Minister Colin Peck. Something happened. Something happened. That's my premise this morning. And how do I know that something happened? I know that something happened because people don't just change, like in the story we're talking about today, without some kind of outside force, without something that happens to transform the people I want to tell you about today. I'm talking about the disciples. You read about them lately, these guys who followed Jesus. If you read a few chapters of the Gospels, which we walked through the Gospel of Luke a few months ago as a church family, you begin to see these disciples are nothing special, right? They mess up all the time. They're a, they're a mess. Uh, just like a lot of us probably feel that way. I mean, if you read about these people, I mean, Matthew pick, uh, Jesus picks a guy named Matthew. He's a tax collector. And, and Matthew's going to sit beside a guy named Simon, who's a zealot. The zealots hated the tax collectors and everyone that was associated with the Roman government. So you've got these two guys that are in the same discipleship group with Jesus. And then you've got others, right? I mean, Bartholomew and Thaddeus. I always think, did, did their parents just run out of names? What kind of names are those names, right? You've got Judas Iscariot, who's keeping the treasury, right? All the money, and he steals some from the treasury, scripture tells us, and he ends up ratting Jesus out at the end. You've got Thomas, who sees all these miracles, but struggles with doubt all through his journey. You've got Andrew, James, and John, just normal fishermen called to this task with Jesus to go with him for three years, not knowing what the end's going to hold. And these disciples did that. They go with Jesus. Immediately, they, they left their nets, they left their tax collector's booth, and they follow Jesus. And then there's Peter. Peter. <laughs> that guy made all kinds of mistakes. We'll talk about his mistakes a little bit more. In fact, this last week, I got to be at learning to lead camp at ACU with some of our fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. I'm worn out. I'll tell you that. I still need a few naps to, to sleep that off. But we talked about the life of Peter. And I was reminded this week about uh, all of the mistakes that Peter makes along the way. And yet God sees something in Peter and something changes in Peter. And I want to talk about that today, too. And I think the reason that Jesus is able to call these disciples, these 12, is because he knows something they don't know. That's got to be the case. Otherwise, why would you select these 12 to be the leaders of the church going forward? Or 11 once Judas is done away with. He knows something they don't know. And guess what? Jesus picked them to start his church knowing what they should have known if they'd read their Hebrew scriptures, but they don't seem to have any clue about so I want to read a passage that I read a couple of weeks to you about the Holy Spirit, this promise, this deposit uh, that the prophets give. I want to read from the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 36, 
I want to remind you of this prophecy that God gave through Ezekiel to the people of God. Now, the people of God in this scene, when they receive this message, are in exile. They're away from their homeland. They've been taken away by foreign power named Babylon, which is the power of their day. And they're off in Babylon, and they're not having much hope where they're at. But they receive this word of hope in the book of Ezekiel. I want to read it to you. Ezekiel 36, verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is a message of restoration. A message about one day God says, I'm going to bring and I'm going to change everything. I'm going to put a new heart within you. I'm going to cleanse you from your impurities. I'm going to put a new spirit in you. And what kind of spirit is it? He says, it's my spirit, the spirit of God. I believe this is a prophecy about the Holy Spirit that Ezekiel's giving them. And it's a prophecy that Jesus is aware of. And it's what gives Jesus hope about these disciples that they seem to forget about themselves. That this power, this spirit is going to come on them and change everything. So in the book of Acts, we begin to see this come to fruition. Jesus is with his disciples. He's about to ascend to heaven. This is after the resurrection. And uh, before he leaves his disciples, he gives them instructions about what they should do. And in this scene, you can still tell they're not getting it. Uh, Acts chapter one, verse four is where I want to read right now. On one occasion, while he, that's talking about Jesus, was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is the promise that had been given in the book of Ezekiel about a new spirit that would be put on them. And he tells them something really important that a lot of us forget when we feel like we're called by God to do something big. And I believe that God gives those calls on our lives. Looking out this morning, I'm seeing people that God has, has, has given vision to, has given callings to. And, and it's provided the spirit to work into that calling. And this passage is really interesting because when I get a, an idea about what God wants me to do, my first thought is get pen to paper, right? Get a budget together, get plans and strategies, get it all figured out. But that's not what Jesus says in this passage. Did you pay attention to what he says? Because I want you to wait. I want you to wait. Yeah, good stuff's going to happen, but you've got to wait before the timing of God comes, before this gift, this deposit, the spirit comes upon you. Maybe we should learn from that. But when we believe God has called us to do something, we often create action plans without stopping to wait and to pray on God's perfect timing. Some of you understand that real well today because maybe you've launched out too soon or you have waited as hard as that was for the perfect timing of God. But why? Why wait? Well, because they still don't get it. It's pretty obvious when we read verse 6. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? After all this time of Jesus preaching about the kingdom of God and what he wants to do on earth, these disciples still don't get it. They think that Jesus came to establish the kingdom of Israel back in the promised land, right? Take over the Romans. Now, Jesus, you're resurrected. You can do this. You can feed a whole army. You fed 5,000 people. You can raise people from the dead. That's really helpful for a, a king to come in and conquer. But Jesus says, you, you still don't get it. Look at what he says. He says, no, that's not what this is about. Verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, 
And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus corrects them and says, you, you got to wait because there's going to be a spirit that's going to come on you that's going to provide power. And then you're going to go. You're going to go into all the earth, all to the ends of the earth. You're going to share this message. But you got to first wait in Jerusalem. Let's turn to Acts 2 and we'll read the rest of the story about what happens after that. Watch what happens when the Holy Spirit shows up. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Those roof noises are always those Holy Spirit blowing through, by the way. I just wanted you all to know that. They, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? And I love verse 13. We got to read this. Some, however, made fun of them and said, yeah, they've had too much wine. Which makes me wonder, when was the last time at Greenville Oak someone thought there was too much wine going around because the spirit was so uh, obvious here? They, this is amazing what happens at Pentecost. Like crazy stuff's happening. Just sound like the blowing of a violent wind. There's this, uh, there's tongues of fire that are resting on people's heads. They're speaking in other languages. And other tongues and people are understanding. These are people from all over the world that are there for Pentecost. And the next thing you know, guess who stands up to speak? Uh-oh, it's Peter. Now, I know what the other disciples are thinking at this moment, right? They're thinking, anyone but Peter. We've heard this guy before. He's, he's terrible. Remember that time he said Jesus is Messiah, but then he like, you know, Jesus says what it means. He's going to die and be resurrected. He's like, no, no, surely not. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. That's the Peter that's getting up to speak. Same Peter who walks on the water and almost drowns in the, in, the, in the sea. Like this is the Peter who can't get it right. But on Pentecost Sunday, he stands up. And it seems like something happened because he finally seems to get it. He says, this is what we've been waiting for this moment. Ezekiel promised the spirit was going to come, but Joel did as well. In fact, he reads from the book of Joel, another promise from the Old Testament about this spirit that would come. Verse, this is Acts 2, verse 17. In the, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Don't you remember this passage from Joel? It's coming to bear right here and right now. This spirit that's promised is here and it's coming on all people, women and men, Gentiles and Jews, slaves and masters, everyone. And then Peter, the guy who denied Jesus, the guy who nearly sank in the Sea of Galilee, 
The guy who at the Mount of Transfiguration says, hey, I got an idea. Let's build three shelters so we can just hang out here forever with you guys. Like that Peter gets up and preaches one of the most important sermons of all time. And here's his message in a nutshell. Jesus did incredible things when he was on the earth and you killed him. How does that go over in the message, right? But God raised him up. And this God who raised him up, we are witnesses of what God is doing. We saw it with our own eyes and God has poured out his Holy Spirit on us as he promised. And this God, this Jesus is both Savior and Lord and Messiah. And look at the response of the people in verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is Peter. And Peter's not always going to get it right. He's going to mess up again in the future. Paul's going to have to call him out. But in this moment, with the Spirit descending on Peter, 3,000 people respond, not because of the power of Peter's words, but because of the power of the Spirit who indwells him. And who preached the sermon? Peter. Which begs the question, what got into Peter? Which is the wrong question, because the right question is, who got into Peter? And the answer is the Holy Spirit of God. These bumbling disciples are completely changed when the Holy Spirit comes on them at Pentecost. They go from these worthless disciples to powerful leaders who will eventually die because of their courage for the cross, for the same Lord they ran away from and scattered from in the Garden of Gethsemane and after. See, the Apostle Paul wasn't there that day either, but he experienced a similar transformation. But before we go to his story, I just want to land here for just a moment in Acts 2. I mean, this has been our chapter if there's ever been one in Churches of Christ. Some of you, the first verse you memorized was Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. For the forgiveness of your sins, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We've, we've, been, we've called ourselves an Acts 2 church. My question is, is it all of Acts 2 that our church has been about? Or has it just been about a couple of verses? Because if you look at this passage, it is remarkable. This is the starting point of the church. This is when the Holy Spirit descends. This ought to be the kind of church that every church wants to be. But do you notice what happens when the Holy Spirit comes down on this church? The Holy Spirit descends, and what happens? There are people from every nation under heaven who come together. This is the undoing of what happened in Genesis 11. Genesis 11, all the way back to the beginning of the story. You remember this? Tower of Babel, right? They're building this tower of the heavens, trying to make a name for themselves. And do you remember what God does? He tears down the tower, but then what does he do after that? He confuses their language. It's like a story that reminds us of how we got all this culture and language. It's so different all over the face of the globe. And in Acts 2, what God is doing is he's bringing together what has been separated. When the Holy Spirit comes together, what it means is people who should never understand one another, people who come from different backgrounds, people who come from different beliefs, they're able to come together under one roof and understand one another in a way that they wouldn't otherwise were it not for the Holy Spirit of God. Which begs some questions about our church today, right, church? Not just ours, but churches all over our city and around the world. We are still split up like the Tower of Babel 
more than we are picturing the Acts 2 community that was there. And a Holy Spirit-filled community should not look like one culture or one segment of the society. It should look like a church that the Spirit descends on to bring us across the aisle from different perspectives. Nothing in the world will bring people together like the Holy Spirit of God can. My dream is that we can picture that more and more in our own presence, that we look like what it looks like to walk into Walmart, that we look like what it looks like when our kindergartners walk into their classroom for the first time. That's what should happen when the Holy Spirit of God grabs a church hold. Same is true when it comes to other things, right? Other things come together. What happens in the book of Joel? He says, one day the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out, not just on your sons, but also on your daughters. They're going to dream dreams. They're going to see visions. What this means is that a church that is the spirit of God means that all those who have gifts are able to use their gifts for the building up of the body. And all too often, we've, we've made that a gender, that there are some gifts that are given to some genders and some that are given to others. But when the Holy Spirit comes down, uh, according to Joel, and in this passage in Acts 2, it's not gender, the gifts that are handed out. No, no, no. They come together and they're all able to prophesy and to dream dreams and to see visions. They're able to understand one another. They're able to come together in the midst of their differences and worship God together. And what happens when that happens? The community sees it and it makes a difference. They enjoyed the favor of the community because the community looks. I'm I'm just imagining in 2020 next year, right? Election year coming up. What would it look like in the midst of all the division in our culture for a church to stand up and say, we're not going to be divided by the things the world thinks are most important. We're going to allow the spirit of God to be the thing that forms our identity and our unity because the Holy Spirit brings together people that would never come together otherwise. What does that look like? What, maybe that's what the baptistry starts to, we start to hear those splashes like happen on that day at Pentecost because the Lord added to their number because the community around them sees God's doing a new thing. It's not just the Jews who get this message. It's not, not just men who go into the inner court who get this. Now that wall's been torn down and God is doing a new thing and he's blowing his breath into this world in new ways. What would it look like for our church to get that picture? But it's not just those who are present on that day at Pentecost in Acts 2 where something miraculous happens. And this is a hope to us that weren't in that room either, right? The room where it happened. Hamilton reference right there for you, right? But in Acts 9, outside of that room, the Spirit of God works. Uh, read, I, want, I want to read this to you, Acts 9, verse 17. It's the story of a guy named Saul. And Saul killed Christians. That's what he did. He didn't believe that Jesus was Messiah. And so when it comes to that day when... When, when this is all happening, uh, Saul's the one who's trying to stamp it out. Saul's the one who's standing and holding the coats of people who were killing Stephen, who's one of the first Christians who dies for his faith. And this is what happens to Saul after he's persecuting Christians. He's actually on the way to Damascus to persecute more of them. Listen to this in Acts 9, verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. In just a few days, Saul goes from somebody going to persecute Christians to being someone who goes into synagogues to preach that Jesus is Lord. Spirit doesn't just show up in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit continues to show up. What got into Paul, you might ask? Wrong question. Who got into Paul and who is the Holy Spirit of God? 
And you look at all these disciples, it's amazing how they're transformed. And I would tell you the common denominator of their transformation is the Holy Spirit of God. It's not that they become better on their own. It's not that they clench their fists and, and, and finally put away sin in their lives. No, they submit their lives to the Spirit of God. And we can read these stories and we can think, man, I wish I was there. I wish I was there for those miraculous moments to see the tongues of fire on their heads. I wish I was there to see someone speak in someone else's language and have them understand it. Wouldn't that be incredible? That's remarkable. But what I would tell you is just as miraculous as those moments is the transformation that happens in the lives of these disciples from what we read in the Gospels to who they are in the book of Acts. They were no longer timid. They were no longer confused. They were bold and courageous and inspired and began to set the world on fire with their message about what the Holy Spirit was doing within them and among them. And when I read about the incredible transformation of the disciples and Paul, there's a question that doesn't let me go. And my question is this, if it's true that the Spirit of God dwells in us and our bodies are temples where the Holy Spirit dwells and there shouldn't, shouldn't there be a huge difference between who we were before we were followers of Jesus and who we are afterward? Or for those who don't yet believe, who haven't received the Spirit of God themselves, shouldn't there be a massive difference in the way that Christians live and our quality of life and our ethic than those who don't claim Jesus as Lord? That's what happens in the book of Acts. And I have to ask myself some questions when people don't notice that difference in my own life. Because when the Spirit comes down, people are changed. We should look different than people who do not claim Jesus as Lord. And here's the problem. Often when you hear a sermon like this, we go directly to guilt because we've been taught to do this. Second Corinthians doesn't say that guilt's the thing that leads us to repentance. It says that godly sorrow is the thing that leads us to repentance. Repentance is a good thing. Repentance is when we're going down the wrong path, turning back and getting on the right track again. If a road's out ahead of us, you don't want to continue down that road. You want to find the proper detour. And it's important that we understand that repentance is not this thing we need to walk away from or be afraid of. It's the very thing that sets us back on the path to life. And guilt is the thing that helps us try harder. I'm telling you, you can't try your way harder into a life of discipleship. You can't make enough effort to be good enough. What it's going to take is the Holy Spirit of God and you submitting yourself to that spirit. You don't need to try harder. My guess is you've tried that before, right? And how's it going for you? And work. The only thing that can transform us is us opening up our lives and submitting to this Holy Spirit who can transform. I want you to see what Paul says later on in the book of Romans. Think about this. This is, this is Paul who killed Christians, approved of their death, who persecuted the church. And if that Saul could be transformed into Paul and who he becomes, listen to the words he's able to speak. So if right now you feel condemned, you feel as if there's no hope for you, you feel as if sin has got its hold and there's no way it can be let go of, let me encourage you, pay attention to these words. This is Romans 8 verse 1, the, the words right out of Paul's mouth, the same guy who had killed Christians before. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weak, weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Church, there's no condemnation. You need to hear that this morning. If you are in Christ Jesus, it doesn't matter what you have done. You are not condemned for those sins, thanks to the blood of Jesus. 
Christ has given you life. And he sets you free from the law of sin and death. There was a day where I was bound to the law, right? Before I became a Christian myself, it was only the law that I tried to not do certain things so that I could come into God's good grace, which is a misunderstanding of what the gospel is. But when I give my life over to Christ, what I'm saying is the law is powerless to allow me to live a spirit-filled life. The law lets us know what sin is. It lets us know what the boundaries are. It's a good thing. The law, Paul never speaks about the law as a negative thing. The law doesn't have power in itself, and we don't have power to follow that law without the spirit that comes in and helps us and gives us the power to fulfill God's good commands. Failure and misery, guilt, will continue to be the path for those who continue in that law and that hope of the law. For those who allow the Spirit to come in, they submit themselves to that there is hope the Spirit can direct our lives. Listen, uh, as I read on what Paul says in verse 12, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. If you have the Holy Spirit, church, you have no obligation to the bondage of the law. Your obligation is to the freedom of the Spirit of God that is at work in your life that allows us to put to death the misdeeds of the body. We ought to hear some amens. This is good news, right? There is no condemnation. You are empowered by the Spirit of God. You are not bound or in bondage to the law. You are now living a new life that's open to the Spirit of God. Something happened to those disciples. Just read the Gospels and read the book of Acts, and you see the difference that's there. My question would be, what is it? What got into those disciples? Which is the wrong question. The right question is, who got into those disciples? And the answer is the Holy Spirit. See, the question in the Christian life is not how we often put it. We often say, how much of the Holy Spirit do you have? That's not it at all. The question is, how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? When we're baptized into Christ, we become the possession of God and God's Spirit. And it's not that we get to certain levels of achieving the Holy Spirit in our lives. No, we, we open and release ourselves. We open our hands to receive. Because when we hold on, what we're trying to do is to work our way in our salvation. When we open our hands to the Spirit of God, we allow the Spirit to come and do what we cannot do on our own. We confess our sins, church. We repent of our sins. Godly sorrow moves us to that kind of repentance and back to the abundant life of God. And if you feel convicted this morning, my guess is that there are some of you this morning that are feeling that conviction again. It's easy to quench the spirit and to say there's no hope. But with a message like this of hope, of a reminder about what the spirit of God is, there's probably something going on internally with you right now. What I would suggest to you is that is the spirit of God trying to speak into your life, asking you once again to have hope that you can extend your arms and submit to that spirit again. And what I would suggest is don't quench that voice of the spirit in your life this morning. Allow this to be the morning where you confess, where you repent, where you allow godly sorrow to do its work, where you move toward the forgiveness of God. And others of you may be wondering something else. Maybe I don't have the Holy Spirit. Do I have the Spirit of God? Maybe I haven't. If this is what it's supposed to be and how good it is, maybe you haven't made that decision yet. And so this morning, there's two opportunities as we move toward our invitation this morning. Thank you for listening to this message from the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. 
We hope this message helps you in your walk to find real significance in Jesus. Make sure to give us a rating and review on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher. Discover more about the Greenville Oaks Church online at greenvilleoaks.org.